0: Hello, Andre. Hello. Your biography, Mm. it reads like some kind of Victorian novel.
1: (laughs) And I want to know if it's all true. I was an urchin (laughs) where I used to pickpocket at an early age until an old criminal found me and took me in as his ward.
0: It's not far off.
1: First of all, the first thing it says everywhere that I've read about
0: you was that you were born in Woolworth's department store. Oh,
1: that's true. Well, it's half and half. Uh, I was five days late. And my, they were going to go and induce my mother. And so she was going to go to hospital. So she went down to Woolies to get some pick-a-mix to take into hospital. And basically, as soon as she got in there, I smelt the sweets. <laughs> and uh, her waters burst there and then right by the strawberry fruitellers. <laughs> I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm
0: Marsha from YesYesMarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now
1: on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. So they rushed her into the uh, manager's office and uh, he freaked out a little bit as apparently there was head and uh they rushed me around to me nan's house My nan lived like one road over so they took me mum around to me nans and i was fully born in my did you frequent that Pendleworth that Pendleworth yeah I, it's quite sad now that it's gone but I, I went past there the other day and it's some sort of like pound shop and it's oh. just oh, it's not the same it's They just have a little same. plaque yeah hopefully one day <laughs> and then you were a child actor yeah I was one of those stage brats that you see you know running on stage to hand a piece of information to a Shakespearean actor or, or, you know, carrying a sword or a standard or whatever was needed. But weren't you in Oliver talking of urchins? Well, yeah, I was. That's how it sort of started. I went as an audition just to be one of the uh, many boys as a pickpocket at seven years old. And um, they said, well, you know, you're quite charming and annoying. Why don't you uh, audition for the Artful Dodger? And so I did and landed it. That's sort of how it all started. Uh, I've never done a proper job. This is all I've ever done is shown off on stage in some way or another. And did you sing as well? Yeah, because I was sort of I was a boy chorister, uh, sort of side by side as acting and was singing. And and my nan was an opera singer. And her father was uh, an acrobat. So there was always performers in the family, and it skipped a generation, I think. So there was a, when I was 14, my voice was breaking. My, my, my dad was sort of pushing, you know, you should be an opera singer, you should be an opera singer. But by then I'd got some laughs and it was, no, nah, I want to be an actor, I want to be silly. And so then you ran away with the circus? Yeah, well, I did a show that needed circus skills. I did a show that needed, I needed to juggle and unicycle, so I learned those. And I loved it. I thought, this is great fun. And seeing a, a big lad on a unicycle is a, is a funny sight. And so I went off to Paris and joined the circus school. And I learned all your red-nose antics, learn to wire walk and tumble and catch on a trapeze and climb ladders and do weird things like that. Well, I say climb ladders, not just climb a ladder. <laughs> Obviously, it was a freestanding ladder. You know, it was, it was all strange stuff and uh, did that and then went off and sort of toured around doing a few circuses here and there. And you went right around the world, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, well, I ended up sort of street performing because, like, yeah, yeah, after a while, you kind of go, well, what do I do in the winter? And you end up in hot places doing festivals and so I put myself a street show together and it wasn't of the circus skill kind, it was more of a just clowning, just grabbing people and making them do things, improvisation and yeah I ended up in, uh, the biggest thing was I was um, doing Vietnamese refugee camps in the South China Sea in when I was 21. I was a little kid and there I was, sort of like, you know... And it was only about four of us that would arrive and it was like the circus had arrived for them. It was like, you know, these Vietnamese refugees. It was like full entertainment. You were just literally shouting at them and, and, you know, juggling and they just loved it.
0: Oh, that must have
1: been amazing. Yeah, it was sort of like, you know, a strange thing. Vietnam, tour of clowning. That's how I like to look at it. And then you ended up in Disney World, Florida. Yeah, that was a bit of a weird one. I went and did the World's Fair in 86 in Vancouver which is big things, and and got a reputation as doing street performing and doing things a bit different. Disney wanted, they were opening the MGM Studios, and they didn't want it to be, you know, the typical American way. They wanted more European street performing. That's how they looked at it. And so they brought me along, and I did some workshops and did some directing and writing for them. And it was horrible. Why? Well, it was so sort of, like, regimented. It's so, Disney has its way. This is what we want. This is how it works. And I just didn't get it. I just never understood that. You know, the, one of the characters that they created was a man with this big beard. like It was a huge bearded character. And the guy auditioned for it, had this fantastic big red beard, which was beautiful. But they made him shave it off, and then every day he sticks one on. No. Yeah. Why? And you just kind of go, because you're not allowed to have facial hair on site. There are things like that that you just kind of go, what are you doing? Anytime you're not allowed to take your head off, That's just a complete curse. Um, And one of the things, uh, me and a mate, we created Mickey Mouse's Birthday Land. And one of the things was was there was a train that nobody was using that went around the outside of the park. And we said, well, if you use the train, you can jump the queue. And um, but it was a bit boring for him so halfway along we had a Goofy that had broken down, his truck had broken down he waves down the train the train pulls off with him on it and he suddenly remembers Mickey's presence so he runs off, grabs hold of the presents and runs after the train kids loved it uh, one night you got the driver coming on the radio Yeah, there's no Goofy here, we have no Goofy in his position where is Goofy? and as they slowed down There was a headless goofy running up the track being chased by a gator, (laughs) a big alligator. He's running zigzag and he goes, (laughs) as he's running away from this gator. And they sacked him for taking his mask off. Yeah, yeah. The fact that he was being chased (laughs) by a very large reptile meant nothing to the mouse. And, and so, you know, it was things like that that you just kind of went, but he nearly was eaten. Yeah, well, he should have done it with his mask on. <laughs> and you kind of go, that's a bit wrong. Come on. The potential for mischief must have been high, though, somewhere well, like that. Well, um, I used to get the um, newsletters through and they, at one point, with the European one, they were trying to stop British people from working there because apparently we were causing too many problems. And there was two guys from London who were Chippendale, the rescue rangers. And there was a guy from Liverpool at one point playing Mickey Mouse, and they kept calling him Mickey Mouser. That scout, you see. And they broke into his locker, and they put a permed wig between his ears and a big moustache under his nose. <laughs> And he was furious about it, and, and they were doing main day parade, which, you know, is the big thing always at the end of the day, five o'clock, big main brain parade. And he was, Mickey Mouse was on waving everybody, and they came down sort of waving their arms and kind of going, calm down, calm down, <laughs> like that, as chipping down. And apparently at this point, this scouser lost it, jumped off the float and started... <laughs> Kicking seven hours of shit out of Chip and Dale, and so the sort of like the French management were like, "No, no, we must stop the English from working here. It's too dangerous." Uh, a Winnie the Pooh got bitten by a kid on the inside of his legs, and apparently the Winnie the Pooh just absolutely punched the kid. And he was English. And then the English people got caught calling the place Mauschwitz. And they said, right, that's it, you're not allowed to do it anymore. And so they started calling it Dachau. So we, as far as English people and um, the world of Disney.
0: Right, not a perfect match. Yeah, You can imagine that would be terrifying for a child, though, to see Mickey Mouse beating up Chip and Donald. Oh,
1: yeah, it must have been awful. Uh, Marcus Brigstock went with his kids to... Uh, Euro Disney, and he saw, um, uh, what's the guy, the baddie from Aladdin, for Jar, or whatever it is, for sure, what's he called? He had a fight with Tigger. <laughs> and he said at one point, Tigger was actually standing, like waving his arms, sort of going, come on then, come on then. <laughs> and he said it kicked off. It must also just be very confusing for the children, <laughs> but you're in that car yeah. So how did you go from that to stand-up? Well, um, they had this thing called Cause Comedy Commandos, which was a branch off of a little theatre that they owned in Orlando that started doing stand-up. And then through the universities, they'd had this sort of like little touring in the southern states of America. And they needed an MC and said, look, you know, you've done it on the street. You've done other stuff. Do you want to do it? I went, all right, I'll give it a go, see what it's like. And it was great because, I mean, for me, I to go stand-up that way. I had no material whatsoever. I had no standing behind a mic material. It was all props and, and rubbish and running around stuff. But the accent was such an easy way in. You know, there we were playing like Mobile Alabama, and I'm walking and going, hello everybody, how are you? And they go, listen to his cute voice, what? he's got something in his mouth. They just didn't understand it. It was great and within, within two weeks I'd written a set just about what was happening within the southern states because for me it was so easy and hardly any jokes or punchlines but just, oh look, I'm an Englishman abroad. Hello. They loved it. So then you came back to the UK.
0: Sorry, before then, you did a gig. Now was this when you were still in
1: America? You opened for Bob Hope in '92 in Columbus, Ohio. It was a big thing called Ameriflor. It was the, you know the, the celebration of the discovery of America, and there was a big festival. And I ended up opening for Bob Hope, which was very strange. And uh, he, his memory was just such a, you know so lack. Um, I actually went up to him and said, "Oh, I'm I'm from Bromley." near Elton where you were born, and he was looking at me going, Elton, Elton. And then he went, I was born there? And I kind of went, yeah, that's what I just said. It was so strange, and he had, like, cue cards for everything... Every word he was saying was all on cue cards. Every word. Including his theme song, which is Thanks for the Memory. <laughs> you kind of read that and go, there clearly isn't one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that was when you were still in America. Mm. And then you came back to the UK? I came back to the UK end of 92, yeah. And we're doing a lot of stand-up here. Yes. What was the Bill Hicks thing then?
1: What happened was, was in 91, when I came back, nobody wanted to compare the Woolwich Tram Shed because it was the first Gulf War. And Woolwich, as you know, has got lots of squaddies down there. And when we're apparently at a conflict, the um, curfew in the town is lifted and the soldiers are allowed to go to anything they want to. And so they were turning up at the comedy and just being complete arses. And people were like, oh, you don't, oh, we don't like this, or we don't want to compare it. And I just got asked, do you want to do two months of doing this gig? And I went, yeah, I, you know, I didn't have the work. I just came back on a whim. I said, yeah, I'll do it. And because of street performing and because of America, it's sort of, you know, I was just walking, oh, you're off to the Gulf next week. Hope you die. And they were like, yay! And everyone's going, you can't talk to him like that. I said, yeah, of course you can. And Bill Hicks turned up and I was comparing. And he was sort of like, this is all soldiers. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. And hated it. Hated it. He just did 10 minutes and, and stormed off. And, and I was like, well, what do you do that for? I just you storm off? Well, I don't want to be here. And, and we had this big row, it was really weird, you know, I didn't know who he was. And then about two weeks later I was comparing the store and uh, a double act went on last and did 12 minutes and came off. And I sort of like moaned at my afterwards, what was that about, you hardly did anything? And they were like, oh, well, we can do what we like. And then Bill Hicks, who had also been in the room, just came in and went, hey, that's really unfair what you did. You know, there's a two of you, that's like doing six minutes each. We've all got to do 20 minutes. And then he sort of like stood up for me and I was like, oh, cheers, thanks for that. And he just looked at me and just sneered because he still hadn't got over what happened two weeks beforehand. But yeah, I mean, Bill was over here doing gigs all the time. So anyone in the early 90s was always working with him. He was being chucked out and doing stuff. Yeah, the idea of him just sort of like doing Montreal and then coming over here and, and playing theatres immediately, not true. He was churning like and doing every bad gig and room above a pub around the London area, you could imagine.
0: Like everyone else, has Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, at one time there was a, a small little room in Crystal Palace... I can't even remember what it was called. It was above a Mexican restaurant, the Aztec Club. That was it. And I was comparing and it was Eddie Izard was on, Bill Hicks was on and Harry Hill was doing like an open spot. And you just look at that and go, wow, look at all those people now. You know, yeah. But that's what it was, you know, way back in the nineties. And so you were doing a lot of stand-up. You went on, you did telly stuff, you did the Bob Mills show. Yeah, I don't know if many people remember this.
0: Well, it's a really it's an interesting concept now, given how prevalent a lot of reality TV stuff Tell is. Tell me about it. So we did the first one, or you think? Just to explain the concept. It was Bob Mills doing a doing like a chat show, doing a talk show, yeah. But the difference was, you guys showed everything that went
1: on behind the scenes, fly on the wall as we, yeah, as we put it together. And it's quite strange because the two guys that were with us with the cameras all the time. Comrade Green and, and Rupert, have, have gone off. And, well, Conrad Green was like the executive producer of the Big Brothers from the word go. And Conrad created all the Ibethas uncovered and Grease uncovered, anything that's like that. And those two boys have completely anything where there's a camera hidden away. They're the boys for it. And they started with us on that show. And it was that. It was It was the struggle of us trying to put together a chat show that had to be both topical and had to tick every box for Channel 4 as well as LWT. So it was really interesting. Was it all true?
0: Because obviously when you're doing filming and stuff, you know, I know that often you've got to go, oh, well, could we just reshoot that? But with you over there, and can you get as annoyed with him as...
1: You know, was there... We played near enough everything as it happens. There was, you know, where moments where we could say, look, could you come out of this door because it's easier for this shot. I know it's not your office, but just come out of this door. Don't tell us what you're going to say. Just do it from this door. Was things that we would do. But in terms but of stuff you were saying. In terms of everything, yeah. And, I mean, there was, you know, when you had a guest pull out an hour before the show... And you see everybody panicking. That's all for real.
0: And you were, like, you know, bitching about the producers and when you had fights with them
1: or... Yeah, yeah, it was all kept in. And there were moments where we kind of, like, bit our lip and knew what was happening. And I got into a fight with the Jean-Claude Van Damme. Which no! Was, yeah, <laughs> which was really weird. So there was that. I was at one Hang point... Oh on, no, no, you can't just say that <laughs> he, and not expand. He just kept... We had him for the afternoon and he was just constantly like doing trips and walking into doors and being wacky and when he stood by me he kept leaning over and and just stroking my beard he just kept stroking my beard constantly i just didn't understand i thought at first it was funny anyway we're in the green room after the show And we're talking and he just leans over everybody and starts stroking my beard again. So I just slap his hand away. And there is just literally it is that moment. It was like, you know, when the farmer picks up the gun against Jack Valance in Shane. There was everybody in the room went, Finnish just slapped Jean Faukland down And, and I never even saw this shoe come up. But this thing just clunked me round the side of the head. <laughs> and I went down straight into some chocolate dip. <laughs> I'm dumbfounded. How, all... how is that not on your biography? Oh, that you kicked kicked slapped John
0: claude Van Damme, oh, hit by a... Sh- there are too, too the and many and then... stories that would...
1: Uh... Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that was uh, a very weird one.
0: <laughs> so you were doing the TV stuff, you were doing a lot of stand-up. And then in 2002... You got cancer. Yeah,
1: ding dong. <laughs> if
0: that was a bummer. <laughs> well, yeah, you could look at it that way. Your dad thought it was kidney stones. Yeah.
1: right. Yeah, he was convinced. Well, because we've got a big line of kidney stones through the family. He had stones. Auntie had stones. My cousins had stones. So he was just convinced it was stones. It was great because we actually went to the doctor's and uh, the doctor said, no, I'm afraid your, your kidney's got a tumour, you've got cancer. My dad still turned to the doctor going, no, don't be a stupid doctor, he's, he's got stones. Of course he's got stones. What are you talking about, he's got stones? And I had to look at my dad and go, dad, I've got cancer. I win. <laughs> hey! And it was the only way to shut him up. Well, one of the toughest
0: things with cancer is telling other people and their reactions. But being a comedian, I would assume, you know, a lot of
1: comedians, you find humour in dark stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, my, my thing was, was I honestly thought, I won't talk about it, because I looked at Hicks didn't talk about it when he had it, uh, Graham Chapman didn't talk about it, Kaufman didn't talk about it, all these great comics didn't talk about cancer. I'm not going to go down that route, it would be wrong. And I was told on a Thursday afternoon, that night I was in uh, Jonglers in Southampton, and somebody heckled me, and I went... Don't look with me, I've just found out I've got cancer. What <laughs> it got? It got this laugh, but it also got this, Oh, And I said, the people who are oohing, don't ooh, it's true. And then the people that laughed kind of went ooh. The people that went ooh then laughed. <laughs> and I thought, this is weird playing with this. And so that was it. I just started bringing it in more and more. And I mean, I only had like a month and a half where I was walking around with a tumour. And uh, I've got a picture of it, if you want to see it. Yeah! Oh, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> did I say that too quickly? <laughs> the weirdest thing is, we've just only realised that you can actually see Hitler's face <laughs> in, in the tumour. <laughs> I did a show about it and had a picture of the kidney up there and never noticed. And, and a mate just uh, very recently just went, have you noticed, Dave Fulton, an American comic, just went, have you noticed there's Hitler's face in there? Which uh, is quite incredible. Now then, here we go. And there it is. Now there's your kidney. Where's Hitler? There's his nose just there. There's his two eyes. Whoa. There's his hair. And there's, there's the chin. Is this it, online anywhere? No, I, I, should have online, yeah. I? I should put it online, shouldn't I? Yeah, your Facebook picture. <laughs> should... That'd be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> Can you imagine that? Here's the tumour. But if you can see it, you can see it much better, actually, when it's out. Yeah, it
0: really looks like
1: him. <laughs> Isn't it weird? Wow. So there's a Now, look at the size of that kidney as well. Remember, I think how big a kidney usually is. That's enormous. Yeah, there's seven-pound tumour in that. Seven yeah. pounds, is a, that's... That's a, baby. that's a baby. That's a baby. I had a baby of a tumour. I went in on a, on a Friday morning and came out on a Monday afternoon I had a long weekend of cancer.
0: Hang on, so what about all the chemo and radio? One little blast,
1: I was fine. You did have a nuclear test, though. I did. I had a Mac 3 nuclear dye. Oh, I had everything. I mean, you have to have all those things to make sure, uh, you know, they get you in the tube, the, you know, that horrible... They grease you up and slide you into this glass tube with all these things. You feel like they're going to fire you out of the hospital. It's horrible. Um, The endoscope, you get a camera up down the winky. Oh, yeah, that's really weird. How does that work? Well, they put a little tube into the eye of the penis and then they shoot a bit of water into you to stretch it open a bit and then they very gently gently slide a camera in i don't even have one and i'm crossing my legs yeah it's not nice is it wow
0: well we're telling people you talked about it on stage how how are are the comedians with it well
1: a lot of people were like oh i don't know if you should be talking about this you don't know if you should be talking about this and you are kind of going, well i should do because i i I started passing blood and didn't think anything of it because a mate of mine said oh i do that every six months you just get rid of everything and i kind of thought is that right and then i did it again And I kind of went, hmm. And then on a third time, I thought, no, we should get this checked. And that was, if there was anything to be taken from it, when I went out and did it on tour and I was talking to blokes about it, they were kind of going, oh, really? Oh, oh, right, yeah, because I've done that a couple of times. Then let's get ourselves checked. Let's get to the doctor and and do something about this because, you know, you should have it looked at. So it was useful for that point. And it was just useful to talk about it because, you know, the idiots who had problems... Every time, oh, I've got cancer. Oh no! And they couldn't say the word cancer. you would have people going, "How's your health? How's your problem? How's your little issue?" You just kind of go, "What are you talking about?" Just say cancer, and that is the sort of thing. As as someone who had cancer, it, that is the most annoying thing. That suddenly everybody's treating you with kid gloves and going, "Oh, you're oh, You could die." Well, I could die, but then again, I go up the road and I could die. You don't. You don't get up in the morning going, "Oh, be careful when you go out today." No, you don't. What about other comedians? How were they treating you with kid gloves as well? Yeah, they- really. You, you, you're the people that we're told were the last bastions of freedom of speech, that they're we're the backbone of the saying what's correct and what's wrong, and and then you tell them you've got cancer and they just fall apart. they just be like, oh, cool I don't know what to say. Oh, or you get someone saying, "Oh, my dog had that." That was someone said, "Oh, my dog had that." Well, what? Oh, oh, the dog's dead. Oh, cracking. Well, thanks for that. <laughs> it was incredible. The, the just people were just useless around me. Useless. One one comic just rang me up and went, Vinny, I've heard you've got cancer. And I went, yeah. He said, put me down for the DVDs. And I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> as, as a comic, that's what I want to hear. You know. Who was that? It was a guy called uh, Ian Bolsworth of all things. He's known as Ray Peacock.
0: I know Ray Peacock.
1: He was the person who said that. Brilliant. Though, so in the TV show, I got Ricky Gervais to say it. Before we get onto the TV show, first of all, you, you turned it into a stand-up
0: show. Yes. Well, well, you were talking about it in your stand-up. Yeah. And how were audiences dealing with that?
1: Well, there were points where people were going, oh, you know, you shouldn't talk about this. I've got an aunt who died. And I go, oh, hold on. What happens if somebody's gone on in here who's drowned? I can't talk about swimming. We we have to talk about what what's with us at the time, what we're carrying around with us, what notice in a comedian's eye. That's why I'm talking about it. And the moment I got cancer. And I'm dealing with it, so I'm afraid you as an audience have to deal with it with me. So then you made it into a whole show. Yeah, I thought, right, there's more here than just 20 minutes and turned it into an hour's Edinburgh show. And you filmed the operation? I filmed the operation, yeah. Which again was the hoo-ha that goes with that, with the hospital, you've got to be in charge of the camera. Well, I'm being operated (laughs) on. How does that work? So how did it work? They had a hospital photographer who said he was going to take some photos anyway, but would be happy to pick the camera up every now and again. And when they opened me up and realised how big this thing was, there was talk of actually splitting my chest open. You were on a general
0: uh, anaesthetic? Yeah, there so was, they
1: were, there, was, there was talk, and, and the photographer said, oh, I've never been in one of those, I don't think I could handle it. And so the anaesthetist, who I got on with quite well, he said afterwards he said the photographer left but I picked up the camera and just filmed the things I would think you'd want and he managed to capture some of the finest shots you can imagine there is a moment where they're sort of like lifting my whole side open and they all kind of like look in and I just look like a slab of tuna it just (laughs) looks like this big bit of meat off me and and it was just great you know there was like things like a phone going off during the operation (laughs) and you could see the names of other hospitals on the equipment (laughs) you just kind of go ah the nhs bless them so like
0: how did you before you put the show together did you sort of sit down did you have like a family viewing or something how did you watch it no
1: i literally took the camera i think i came back on the monday afternoon i was stapled which was the weirdest thing you don't get stitches you get these big metal staples to in your side and uh, i think i slept pretty much most of monday tuesday But by Wednesday, I'll get up and there's the camera and there's the film and i just stick it on my Mac, have a look at it. Myself and my girlfriend just looking at it going, oh, yeah, got to take that bit. Oh, yeah, that's the bit. Oh, look at that. I mean, there's a moment where they seem to have, like, clamps all around me and you see my side, but there's a hole that just goes on forever. Wow. So you put that in the show. So that was in
0: the show. Was there bits either that you were talking about on the film where you were going to put it in the show and you
1: thought... It's not funny, but it's really gory. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? Dave Gorman came to see the show, and he's a person who gets a bit queasy at things like that. And the moment they'd put me a tube quite far down my throat, and what's the thing? you know the little bit that dangles? The ureter. Don't want to say urethra because no, that's, that's your tube. Bit, that's, your, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's your wee tube. That shouldn't be in your mouth. Um, <laughs> and, and what happened was, was it really it, it started swelling up, and it was massive, and and it was just like it was like a, a little balloon in my mouth. Just it was hanging on my tongue. And actually, if I sort of like leant over, it would hang out my mouth. It was so big. And there was no comedy there, but I just wanted to talk about it because it was such a weird thing that happened that I've just had a kidney out. I'm covered in tubes. I look like the Hindenburg before it breaks from the cables. It's just wrong. And all I care about is this piece of thing in my mouth that I can't stop playing with, that the nurse is going, please don't touch it. And I'm like a little boxer going, ah, whacking this thing. And that was the moment where he went, where he was just like, you know, there's no comedy there, but I was like, you know, I didn't want to hear that. And it's like, well, then that's why it's there.
0: (laughs) That's why that's there. Then, having done the stand up show, you then made a film for BBC Three called Hurrah for Cancer. How was that for you? How was it making the film?
1: It was something that I'd been knocking around for a while, going, look, I really, you know, I'd like to get this on. And everybody was like, well, we can't do this or we can't do this. And then suddenly, because it was within a cancer, what's the word? Uh, A series of cancer shows. And, and a concert for cancer and that was the weirdest thing they asked me to do the Alexandra Palace uh, will you do five minutes of cancer stand up at this big <laughs> festival and I had to go on between Goldie Looking Chain and Razorlight there was a pit of the ego going oh yeah that would be alright 3,000 people and between those two and there should have been a part of me that just goes you can't do five minutes of cancer material without the build up without the whole how I got there just to walk out and go right ladies and gentlemen Cancer jokes. <laughs> it just it was it was all right. I got away with it, but uh, it was foolish that, that was the big finale of the festival. So they, they commissioned to do the half-hour show, and it was strange because there's nothing in there but the words itself. If you go on YouTube, you can see it. And it's only my story. So we recreate me going to the hospital and things like that. But it's just words. And you were doctors in it? Yes, yes. And my dad as well. We recreated the moment where we were told. and There's quite a few comedians reacting to the way comedians were. And it's interesting. I just, you know, I wanted to do it, to do it really. It won an American Independent Film Award, which was very strange. Because I just got a call out of the blue, just saying, oh, you, you know, you've won this big award. And it was like, oh, right. OK, I didn't know about that. And then I got a call from Pfizer, you know, the the drugs people. And I'd just read that book, The Corporation, and discovered that they were like the second richest company on the planet. And this person from Pfizer said, yes, we, look, we've seen your programme and we're about to put money into cancer research and we'd really like to use 10 minutes of it, if, if that's all right. And I was like, well, yeah, I guess that's all right. But, I mean, how much are you putting in? They said, oh, a million dollars. I said, well... No, double it and I'd be interested. And they're like, well, I'm not sure we can do that. I said, well, you know, I know how much money you've got, double it and come back to me. No, I didn't hear anything. About three weeks later, they came back and said, all right, we've had some meetings, we're prepared to double it. And I said, okay, you can use what you want, use what you want. Within 20 minutes, I got a call from the president of cancer research in America, just Mr. Vincent, what you've done is incredible. Oh, this is fantastic. And I'm going, well, it's not really. I mean, $2 million is nothing to them. And he went, two million? No two billion and I went what and he went no you've got two billion dollars and I, I literally I, I just hit the floor I just just fell on the floor going how much and he went no two billion and this bloke had said a billion dollars down the phone to me how, what, how much of an arse must you thought that I just cockily went nah double it no, he must be going, never deal with Londoners. Never deal with Londoners. And I was just, nah, double it, go on. But it worked. it worked. That is unbelievable. So now whenever I get asked to do a benefit, I go, no, I'll raise $2 billion for cancer. <laughs> yeah. nah, I've done no, i No, don't, I don't. No, I'm not interested. Wow. Um,
0: I really, I really love the show. And it's something, when I watched it, I put a link up on Twitter and I got loads of replies back from people going, oh my God, that's amazing. And I think... That you're right, that with cancer, people just don't know how to
1: talk about it and they don't know how Mm. to deal with it. It it doesn't help that the papers make money from Mm -hmm. cancer. It doesn't help that they know that a story saying chips give you cancer will sell papers as opposed to saying, hey, do you know what, the survival rate now of testicular cancer is 89%, which is what they should be doing. They should be celebrating the good news, but they don't. You know, hence Jade was a good story. Jade Goody was a great story, was there was a mum who was leaving two kids... And, oh, my God, what a horrible thing to have. And the more they played it, the more the audiences and and the punters just went, oh, yeah, it's awful, it's awful. And nobody was actually going actually jade's an idiot for not going to get herself screened when she was told there might be a possibility that you have cancer nobody played that story nobody pointed out that she was so busy trying a self-obsessed celebrity that she didn't do which was the correct thing to do which was to go and get herself checked when she was told and because you know it's easier to have that story that makes cancer you know the most dangerous thing and i hate all that battle against cancer and, and survivor and win the battle because if you win a battle against cancer it means that everybody that dies is a loser and that's just wrong that's wrong on every level and and so it it does anger me how people use cancer for their own gains in the media. But
0: I feel like what was so nice about your show was going, look, I can talk about cancer and it's quite fun and funny. Mm. There's um, the first blog that I ever read was only last year. I couldn't ever get into them. And it's called com, And it's a girl who's got breast cancer. And she's, you know, she's sort of touching and
1: moving, but she's hilarious Mm. in it as well. And that was what hooked me in. The the reason it's called Hooray for Cancer is there was a a woman who had a brain tumour and she was basically told she had six months to live. And that was 14 years ago. And since, you know, in that six months, she just went mad. She swam with dolphins, she skydived naked, and all the things that she said she'd do, in her life has just been so positive that I don't want to say that the positiveness has kept the cancer away. But I certainly feel that might be something of it. But, you know, I think that's too easy to say, yeah, let's tick that, and that, you know, you'll survive cancer, because I can't. But it's just that, you know, there were too many blogs that said oh, you know, I've got cancer, that's it. I mean, my doctor even says in the program that he tells people they've got cancer. 50% sort of deal with it. 50% go, okay, right, what do we do? 30% pretty much fall apart and go, okay, oh, I'll have to get my family and da-da-da. And he says, and there's 20% he never sees again. Which, to me, is ridiculous. That as soon as you've been told you've got cancer, that's it, I'm going off and I'm going to go in a cave and I'm going to die. To me, that is just not the way to deal with it. And it's and I think it's part of the media making it this big, scary monster that they think that's it, everything's falling apart, that we've got to get over. The show itself, everybody kind of went... When I took the show on the road, it was like, oh, I'm not sure about if you're going to get an audience, you know, making a funny show about cancer... And the people that did come had usually been touched by cancer in some way. There was a great one, I think it was in Hayward's Heath, and there were, there were three women who'd all met while having surgery for breast cancer. And they discovered at my show that only two of them had had a breast removed, that the woman who was actually had, was in much worse state than the other two didn't have her breasts removed. And they didn't know that, that they hadn't actually talked about what had happened. Wow that you kind of go well, what were you doing what how come you don't know well because she was in a far worse state than the other two they didn't want to talk to her about it and you kind of go but look now look what's happened you've only got four tits between you and she's doing all right and and it was it's strange that it's still this taboo that it's still, you know, the thing that we shouldn't be talking about, that we certainly shouldn't be doing jokes about and certainly shouldn't be, just seem to be talking about it like as if it's a splinter, which annoys me. So you, you've got the all clear now. Yeah. You're in remission. I was in
0: remission. Oh, you I'm now know, out of remission. You know, it's oh. been over
1: five years. Five, remission is a five, which again is such a horrible word, isn't it? Remission. It makes me feel like that my body's a discotheque and my cancer's gone. If I go out, it's all right if I come back later. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just gonna have a fag. You know what I mean? It's just again, it's all those sort of words that I'd rather be told. Yeah, look, you're clear, but you for five years you've just got a little bit more chance of getting cancer than your average Joe, and you kind of go, okay, I'll deal with that. But remission always sounds like it's coming over the hill. Mm. Here it comes.
0: So you're through that I'm now. I'm through that now. Yeah. So back to the TV stuff. You were doing reports on Marcus Brigstock, who we had on the podcast last week. Uh, his show, The Late Edition on BBC Four. You were doing reports on that. Yes. Yeah. And then now the two of you are taking it on the road as the early edition.
1: Yeah, well, it was sort of, we we went up and did, I'm sure he probably mentioned this, we went to Edinburgh and we were doing live shows there and we just thought, how can we make material up? How can we? And we just thought, well, let's do it as a live show. And it's sort of like built from there. And so the early edition is us just trawling the papers.
0: And then you're doing, as well as doing tons of different festivals, you're doing this run on the South Bank in the Udderbelly, the big purple cow that they're playing up. Yes, yeah. On Sundays Mm. in June and first half of July. The only one you're not doing is Glastonbury. yes. Uh, So the dates that you're doing the Udderbelly, they're going to be lunchtime shows. Uh, 7th, 14th, 21st of June, then the 5th and
1: 12th of July at 12.30. Mm. Free tea and coffee. Apparently. Can I just plug the 7th of June? Because we we know who's doing the 7th of June. (gasps) Oh, who, who? And it's Phil Jupitus and Lewis Black. And if you don't know Lewis Black, he is just one of the best political comics from the States. He is absolutely fantastic. He used to be on The Daily Show with John Stewart. He just have his own little piece and he is just wonderful. I'm over the moon that we have him for the very first show. Brilliant. And Phil Jupiter's is Phil Jupiter, isn't he? Number five, are you Uncle Albert from Only Fools and
0: Horses? Bless him. So all of those things are happening at the Udderbelly on the South Bank but otherwise festivals up and down the country and dates and things and also uh, the video of the um for cancer
1: are all up on your myspace which they are. is Andre Vincent, myspace.com i guess
0: <laughs> myspace.com my brother my programs. brother who's
1: a lovely little fella who is he's part of the underbelly he just does all these things for me and he just goes oh you've got a facebook page now and and you have to answer these things and i kind of go All right, then. (laughs) It's great that I've got a technical little brother and he just goes, now that's up and that's up and you're doing this and you're doing that. All right, then. (laughs) That's what I recommend. Get a brother that's 15 years younger than you.
0: Well, the place that they should go and look for the brother's page is myspace.com forward slash Andre Vincent. Andre, thank you so much for coming
1: on. (laughs)
0: thanks so much for listening if you like that you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic the world's best stand-up comedians get serious about comedy so asking them things like what's your writing process how do you find your voice what do you think about touring how do you deal with hecklers we interviewed 42 stand-ups including Eddie Izzard Sarah Millican Phil Jupiter Stuart Lee Mark Marin. it's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing if you want to find out more go to yesyes. Marsha.com forward slash off the mic.